Marvelites. You are listening to Marvel's Full List for new comics on sale September 8th, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Ooh, Tucker, we are deep into September. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good, you know. Um, I'm coming up actually on my last few weeks here on the West Coast, and we'll be headed back to New York City. Right in time for sweater season, going on walks in the park. Yes. I'm really excited. Hell yeah. Um, that'll be good. But right now we have to roll on with the show because this is the official Marvel podcast. We talk about all the Marvel comics releasing every week, all the new books. We give you our picks of the week. We dish out some awards for all the comics that are coming out this week. Tucker will give us an award to give out and then we'll tell you what's coming out in collections as well as on Marvel Unlimited. We're releasing right before cool stuff is happening all yeah. over the place at Marvel. So I think we'll be talking about a lot of that in the coming weeks. There has been some neat stuff on the comic book front. There were a bunch of titles announced last week. Some really cool stuff looking at the slate of new Marvel comics hitting at the end of 2021 and into 2022. So I'm excited, Tucker, for us to talk about stuff like She-Hulk by Rainbow Rowell and, oh, yeah. and Timeless by Jed McKay and the team and the amazing art that we're going to see from Aaron Cooter and Marco Coquetto and, and so many of those artists. Where can fans learn about some of these titles that we're, we're teasing right now? Uh, hit up marvel.com for all the information you'll need about these eight new tenpole titles that we have in the coming weeks. More and more info will be dripping out about those stories. Um, and I'm very, very psyched. Literally, take your pick any one of those eight titles that were announced. I'm like chomping at the bit for. We like the comics, y'all. Uh, and we also like our guests that come up on the show, like our guest this week, Preeti Shibber, who uh, joins us to talk about Nightcrawler Homecoming. And Preeti has another book in her Marvel Avengers Assembly line that she's been writing. These Marvel Avengers Assembly books are uh, middle grade novels, great for, you know, sort of eight to 12 year olds, wonderful stuff. And this one is called Exchange Students 101. Very excited that uh, Preeti has been doing these books and we're going to have her on later in the show uh, and get ready for a lot of Nightcrawler talk because we love the Blue Elf a whole lot. Mine got. Do we love that guy? Yeah. We also love some comic books that we're going to dig into now for our picks of the week. First up, look, I feel like everybody should just say, oh, cool. Defenders is always going to be one of <laughs> Ryan's picks of the week. It is just a friggin' favorite no matter what. It is written by Al Ewing, art by Javier Rodriguez, and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. And they're credited in this book as just storytellers, Al and, and Javier. But they do work very closely together on this title. It's a bonkers book. I'm going to just put it right out there. It has got this team of defenders led by Doctor Strange. Uh, it's Doctor Strange, Masked Raider, Silver Surfer, Harpy, and Cloud have gone so far back in time. They are in the previous universe. So... In sort of Marvel chronology, there are different universes. One begets another. The explosion from one universe causes the birth of the next one. So the one we're in is the seventh. It's called the seventh cosmos. So they go into the sixth cosmos and they actually find themselves up against the sort of analog for Galactus in this universe. The title of this issue is called Galactus's Mom Has Got It Going On. And it's true, they run up against Galactus's mom, who's just this awesome science, you know, she's the closest thing to a superhero, they explain in the book. She's this big science hero in this universe, and she's 
trying to fight Galactus and stop it from devouring Ta, the world that Galactus in his previous more humanoid form is from. So we get this awesome, funny, weird, sexy story because Galactus' mom hitting on Doctor Strange, hitting on like Silver, like she's just like flirting and going. She is ready. She's having a blast. She is smiling. Like that's part of why I love this book. Characters seem like they're having fun, even in the midst of horror and danger and weird. There is like Javier Rodriguez has a way of drawing someone smiling that just utterly makes my heart explode. It's so good. Uh, I don't want to really get too deep into the plot. We get some big surprises in here. We get wonderful moments. It is one of the most jaw-droppingly stunning-looking titles we put out at any point. It is magical and and beautiful, and I think everybody should give it a try. It's unlike anything else that we have in all the best ways possible. So please, please, please go read Defenders. Here, here. I quickly want to mention, go check out an interview written by your longtime pal Ben Morse on Marvel.com, which is an interview with Al Ewing and, and Javier Rodriguez about Defenders, about Ooh. what brought them to the project, all that good stuff. It's live right now on the site. Now I'm jumping up with my pick this week, which is Kazar, Lord of the Savage Land. Number one, uh, brand new number one for you folks as we head up to the land where time stands still. This issue is written by Zach Thompson with art by Herman Garcia with colors by Matthias Lopez and letters by VCs Joe Caramagna. I'm a big fan of Zach's work. Now Zach is taking the reins here of this Kazar Kevin Plunder story, which is everything you could want from a Kazar story and next to nothing that you would expect from a Kazar story. Yes, we have Kazar in his the coolest treehouse home in his loincloth, his long blonde hair, being Kazar dinosaurs, etc., Savage Land stuff. But then there's this darker, horrific element to it that sort of creeps into the story in slow, quiet ways. And before you know it, it's overtaking you. The way that this story sort of plays with the horror genre, but also plays with the character's mind and what's going on in his mind, what's going on with his past, and then sort of spits out into reality in this really creepy, unusual way, I think it's just great. But it's also perfectly built for like a uh, number one and new readers and readers who may not be super familiar with Kazar or who may be checking out this book for the first time. Beyond that, the way it's realized, the way that Herman Garcia puts this on the page and the way that Matthias Lopez colors it is absolutely beautiful. It is one of my favorite looking number ones in a long time. And I might as well add this book is edited by Sarah Brunstad. So, of course, it's going to be good. Of course. Yeah. All right. Our third pick of the week. And this one was really tough. Before we started recording, we were going back and forth, hemming and hawing about six different options we could have had for this third pick. But I invoked my Agent M powers and I said, <laughs> I'm just choosing the book of pure horror and joy that is Savage Avengers number 24. Written by Jerry Duggan, art by Patch Zercher, colors by Yava Tartaglia, and letters by VCs Travis Lanham. And it is so bleak. 
And I loved every single panel and page in this one. Like, it feels like the big epic climax of this series as all the heroes that we've been seeing throughout the pages are going up against Kulin Goth at the height of his powers. He's finally, like, emerged and said, I'm just going to kill you all. And I'm going to have a good time doing it. And he does. Spoiler. There's so many just gruesome things in this issue. So come at it knowing that it's upsetting if you don't like gore or seeing your heroes destroyed and beheaded and heads on pikes and stuff like that. But if you're into gnarly, gnarly, super heavy metal, rad killer storytelling, this is it. Patch has been doing some of the finest work of his career throughout this entire Savage Avengers run. And here he's got a ton of characters to play with. I mean, there's multiple pages with a dozen or more characters on them and big action sequences and nightmarish, you know, hellscapes. And as they say at the beginning of the book, don't flip to the end, get there naturally, read the story. But the last page had me going, well, damn it, when am I going to get the next issue? It (laughs) comes out every month. I want it right friggin' now. And the doom of it all. I'm just going to leave it at that. The doom of it all. So wonderful. Um, Now we are headed into all the new comics coming to your local shop this week. And we will be handing out our full list because your pull list will be full of great books this week. Mm. So my full list begins with Amazing Spider-Man number 73 and... I want to shout out the variant covers for this issue because I think they're really like especially great. This issue though in particular is a very laconic, concise issue of a Spider-Man story in particular. Any given page, you flip to it and there are maybe, maybe 10 words on the page. You know, there are here and there just super, super concise super visual storytelling across the board that I think is just so always welcome and so wonderfully done. This is what we love about comics and this is what's so special about this medium. So shout out to Zay Carlos and Carlos Gomez with Marcelo Ferreira who unite to tell this story so wonderfully visually. As we come to the end of a chapter of Amazing Spider-Man and transition into a new era, this sort of totally encapsulates the look and how I'll think back on the 2018 Spider-Man run. So my full list goes to the art and the way this all looks here as we speed towards this conclusion. Uh, Also, in this issue of Amazing Spider-Man and in several other titles this week, there is an eight-page story with Captain America and Spider-Man because it's the... It's 20 years since the events of September 11th, 2001, and Joe Quesada, John Romita Jr., Scott Hanna, Marte Garcia, and some others put together a little story about those we lost and the events of that day. So it's it's a very somber, very impactful story that um, I think you all will read it when you read your comics this week. All right, moving on, we have Avengers Tech on number two. This is the sort of Super Sentai flavored Avengers book where you've got our superheroes, our Avengers team, which includes Wolverine, Captain America, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, and others. They've got these souped up Iron Man suits because their powers are are gone. They've been taken away by Red Skull, who's got shattered Infinity Stones that uh, has allowed him to, to mess with their realities. So you just, you get a lot of neat, 
team-ups and transformations, and I think that's where I'm going to give my full list, pull list award to this book, is just seeing the squad moments as the characters like mesh and flow together as one team. It does have that feel of like, you know, your Power Rangers, your Super Sentai, those types of, of shows. Oh yeah, next up we have Champions number nine, and this is the penultimate issue of Champions in this volume, and what a Really fun 10 issues it will have been. I'm just a big fan of everyone involved here. And this is basically, listeners, a little BTS info here. The first thing that we talked about when we came on board here for today's episode, producer Jasmine said, Vivision Fit, page five of Champions number nine. Good God. And look, who am I to argue? There is some stuff that we have gotten very well used to from artist Luciano Vecchio and his incredible taste, not just his ability to like portray the action and the story in something like this, but his ability to color it and present it with like a grounded, youthful look. And something like that, I think, is totally part and parcel of what we've come to expect from a series like this, which is so, so wonderful. So if you are a Champions fan, of course, you are going to love this. You're going to love where we are headed here as we get some last-minute Champions goodness. So uh, my full list goes to Luciano, goes to that look, goes to Viv Vision. Hell yeah. Looking incredible. All right, we've got Conan the Barbarian, issue number 300. Yes, that is the legacy numbering. It's actually issue number 25 of the current run, but it marks 300 issues of Conan the Barbarian series. Uh, This one, I will say, is also the final issue of the series for the moment as we are moving over into the King Conan story that Jason Aaron and Mahmoud Asrar have been working on, picking up from their first 12 issues of the series. Uh, So we'll be jumping over to that next time we get a big Conan book, but they go out with a huge bang in this one. It's just packed with incredible creatures. Creators, Jim Zub and Corey Smith, Larry Hama and Paul Davidson, Dan Slott and Marcos Martin, and Priest with Roberto De La Torre. When I saw Dan and Marcos doing a story in this, I flipped my wig because when they come together, it's magic. We've seen that in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man. And here, it's incredible. This would have been one of my picks of the week in any given week. It's got action, adventure, horror, romance, comedy, everything you want out of a Conan book. And just like, there's a dude here with like a giant flying horse with a flaming sword and a big helmet. And he's going after Conan. This book rules. As we say, it's a full list this yeah. week. So the, the full list award goes to... The Dan Slott, Marcos Martin story, just because it's spectacular. How could it not be? All right, next up, we have Daredevil number 34, which is part four of the story arc called Lockdown. Somehow, this creative team led by Chip Zdarsky continues to turn up the heat. It's just crazy. And how that comes across on a character level is just unbelievable. I am in awe of this series. I'm brought back to a story that Donnie Cates told where he and Matt Rosenberg were sitting at a Marvel creative retreat a long time ago now, hearing Chip talk about this story and going to each other. Chip's going to win an Eisner for that. That's crazy. And yes, Chip and company have been nominated for an Eisner for this series. But what I'm getting at there is... It must have been so obvious from the very beginning what an amazing epic tale this is going to be. And it's playing out right in front of our eyes. The relationship between Matt Murdock and Cole North, for example, is unbelievable. There's been this 
dance between these two characters for so long. And it's reaching a new evolution in this issue. What's going on with Elektra? One of the biggest stories in comics, period. Elektra Nacho is taking over the Daredevil mantle and wearing the red suit. The relationship with a character like Typhoid Mary in here. There's so much going on. As we see Wilson Fisk start to grow in influence in this story, start to head towards Devil's Reign, speaking of those eight titles that were announced last week, or a character like Bullseye, who's at the center of this story arc right now. Any one of those like would be headline news on their own, but they all dance together. They all come together to form this incredible, epic, operatic sort of story that I cannot get enough of. I've already said too much. I've already spoken too long about this series. Full list award goes to the creative team, to everybody involved, um, goes to Devin Lewis, the editor, and Nick Lowe, executive editor, Danny Kazem and Tom Groman, who are assistants on this book for shepherding it all along. Scream it from the rooftops. Good God, Daredevil is good. Yeah. Uh, Devil's Reign, coming soon. Woo, can't wait. Uh, another book I wanted to pick is Deadpool Black, White, and Blood number two. It's just so damn good. Listen to this. You got David and Maria Lapham doing uh, a story with Pete Woods, which features the Purple Man. You've got Carla Pacheco and Leonard Kirk just having a blast. Leonard looking fab in this issue. It is wonderful and weird. And then one of our absolute favorites, Daniel Warren Johnson, coming in and making you feel something emotionally during a Deadpool story. And I will give my fullest Polis award to the Daniel Warren Johnson written and drawn story because that the ending was really sweet and wonderful and uh, kind of perfect. Totally agreed. Uh, next up we have Excalibur number 23. Oh my God. Getting to read Teeny Howard Right, Victor Von Doom is among life's great pleasures. It is so awesome. Not just the literal dialogue that Doom says when he says stuff like, I allowed you to accompany me because your tender heart feared for one of your mutant whelps. Amazing. Uh, it's not just because of that, but it's because of that perfect Dr. Doom place within this team. He sort of forced to go along with this group. This group is forced to go along with him. They're sort of forced to get along, but of course they're not going to get along at the same time. So much fun just for that alone. So my full list mention goes to old Vicky. Vicky. Uh, all right, we've got uh, Extreme Carnage Toxin number one in here as we're racing along to the big climax of the Extreme Carnage storyline. This one, obviously, it's a toxin book. Um, so it's trying to even up the odds uh, of the, the good side with anti-venom and silence versus carnage and his minions. I won't tell you which side Toxin takes, but my fullest pullest award for this one goes to just Gerardo Sandoval, born to draw big thick, brawny, veiny, symbiote-encased <laughs> creatures. It's just the big boys. He draws the big boys really, really well. Next up, we have Shang-Chi number four, and huge, huge admiration to writer Gene Lanyang, who's brought it to us. The story that we're getting out of this is surprisingly emotional. It's surprisingly intimate. It's so many different things at once. So my fullest award goes to like this wonderful sort of double play that's happening here between like this amazing 
family story that's continuing to evolve for this character. And it's right alongside this huge, beautiful story as we travel to somewhere like the Negative Zone. So shout out to everybody, including, of course, DK Ron and Triana Farrell, who visualized the Negative Zone so beautifully. Great stuff. Hell yeah. I love that book so much. Yeah. All right. We've got some Star Wars for you with Star Wars Dr. Afra number 14. I think everybody saw the news recently of the return of the Crimson Dawn into the Star Wars comics. So that's all part and parcel of the War of the Bounty Hunters. And uh, we get to see Dr. Afra and Sonostaros digging into the Crimson Dawn of it all in this issue. I will give my pull his fullest award to just a freaking great ass cover of this book by Sarah Pakele just exactly tells you who Dr. Afra is. She's a little sneaky, a little uh, cheeky and is totally great. Well, yeah, continuing in the realm of Star Wars, next we have Star Wars War of the Bounty Hunters number four. We are at the penultimate issue of this War of the Bounty Hunters. What a ride it's been. There's been a lot of chatter about the return of Kira, a character that a lot of people really loved instantly from Solo Star Wars story. And to see a character like that come back around and have a really, really major part to play in a story like this is so cool. So shout out to Charles Soule who does a wonderful job of like making this character feel totally familiar and like everything she does, you're like, yeah, of course that's something Kira would do. While at the same time, knowing that he's forging new ground, he's one of the first people that's getting to tell a Kira story, period, ever. So it just feels so right so instantly. So full list goes to Charles. And our last book of the week, X-Force number 23. This issue is a nightmare. In all the best ways, you've got a whole bunch of really great chess pieces on the move. Uh, we see a lot of what's going on in Russia. We get some really big hints about the future of that part of the storyline. And also, just Beast. There's a right? section in here, man. Oh, my Beast, God. He's, like, doing some stuff. He's obviously making some terrible decisions, but he thinks he's doing the right thing. He says, he's thinking to himself, if we're going to survive, we need a bastard in charge. I'm that bastard. And it's just, <laughs> it rules. It's so good. Oh, such, God. Uh, this beast in here is terrifically messed up. But my fullest pullest award for this one goes to Russian nesting dolls. When you read this <laughs> issue, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's the most, one of the most horrifying things we've seen Mr. Benjamin Percy <laughs> put into action in the pages of his Marvel work. And we want to give a special shout out to, we, we talked about this uh, before we started recording to Martin Coccolo, the artist on the book who, uh, alongside Guru EFX, steps into, obviously, we're huge fans of Joshua Kassara, who has sort of given this title its visual identity. But Martin did great job here. I'm not familiar with Martin's work, but it's a spectacular, spectacular issue. Really great work here. We will see Joshua team up once again with Benjamin on the 10 lives and X deaths of Wolverine. Uh, we'll get more of that real soon. You mentioned like 20 different things in there that I could like go on and freak out about, but I'll just leave it and we'll continue on uh, to the collections that are hitting shelves this week. We have She-Hulk by Dan Slott, the complete collection, volumes one and two hitting shelves this week as well. I have to, have to, have to mention X-Factor by Leah Williams, volume two, one of just the best series over the last year or so hitting collections. Yeah, over on Marvel Unlimited, you can read Black Cat number seven, a bunch of great Heroes Reborn titles in there. But obviously, the most important issue for you to read this week is X-Force number 20, part of the Hellfire Gala. 
and an appearance by me. <laughs> I'm on two separate pages of that because Joshua drew me and my This Week in Marvel cohorts into the issue, uh, Lorraine Sink and James Monroe Eigelhart. Thank you once again, Josh. Everybody go read that. Read all the comics on Marvel Unlimited. And what else should they read, Tucker? They should read Nightcrawler Homecoming. That's the 2014 series, which is brought to us by Chris Claremont and Todd Knock because we are talking all about it with Preeti Shibber, writer of Marvel Avengers Assembly, and so much more. So dig into it. Get your blue on with Nightcrawler right now. All right, Tucker, get ready for a very low energy reading club because our guest <laughs> this week is Preeti Chibber. Preeti, hello. <laughs> I, I was like, oh no, I'm going to laugh before he's done talking. Perfect. I almost made our friend Lorraine Sink spit whatever liquid she was drinking all over her microphone right as we were going to start recording with one of the executives from Marvel Studios yesterday. And I was really <laughs> bummed that she didn't spit all over. I was like, and I now tried. I see what the goalposts are for this. So 100%. I'm just going to keep my water far away. <laughs> Good. You're going to be parched after we get talking about Nightcrawler here on this episode. So uh, one thing we want to do, Preeti, is for our listeners, we'd love it if you could give a 30-second summary of what the story is. I'm going to give you a countdown starting in three, two, one, go. All right. So Nightcrawler is back from the dead and he's kind of re readjusting and figuring out how to be a mutant again and end uh, at the school. He's hanging out with his friends. There's a lot of drama, a lot of action, a lot of kissing, which is my favorite. Um, and of course, there's some tears. Uh, it's he, They're like kind of two big adventures that happen. One is with his like childhood love, Amanda. And then one is getting like saving a bunch of kids from being enslaved. And that's it. Oh. We end on enslaved. Uh <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty good. Great job. It's tough, right? That 30-second <laughs> That was <summary>. so stressful. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to need that water, but dare you. Do not. Well, I do it. not. I do not dare. <laughs> Pretty, are you a Kurt Wagner fan in particular? Are you a particular fan of this run? What made you select this one? I love Kurt Wagner. I love Nightcrawler. I know I'm, I'm kind of known for being the Spider-Man fan, which I am, obviously, but... There's something about the like drama and angst of Nightcrawler that I really enjoy and the sort of romantic hero aspect. It's just really, it's fun to read. It is. And that's what's interesting about this book is because this is Kurt sort of coming to grips with so many things. Like he had died heroically, beautifully, and had gone to heaven essentially and was kind of restless. And this is him coming back and dealing with that. So he's not super bubbly Kurt all the time. Like he has his moments, but he's not exactly the like, you know, the fuzzy elf, happy-go-lucky prankster nightcrawler. But we get those moments. And it's um, I remember reading this, but not a lot of it stuck out in my mind, uh, if I'm being honest. But I really enjoyed it reading it this time. Yeah, it's a really like emotional read which I like, like I forgot kind of how many moments of deep sadness there are. Like I cried like three times reading this, yeah. Yeah. which is, is always, you know, kind of funny when it's 21, 22 page 
you know, issues to get that amount of punch. Like Claremont is just so good at it. He's so good at that emotional manipulation. And I mean that in the best way, because that's what writers do is emotionally manipulate you. I am a huge Kurt fan because I think he just walks that tightrope so well between the sort of merry mutantness of everything of the X-Men and then him being this like walking representation of the biggest questions there are, specifically his fascination with his devotion to his interest in religion, his like otherness is also just a like present in such a big way, I think always in terms of, I don't know, I guess just how he relates to other mutants. So anytime that I get to see like a, a story like this or a Nightcrawler solo series, I'm thinking of Way of X as well is like a perfect example. I'm always so fascinated to see how the writers tackle those big questions because they're sort of always begging to be asked by this character. I'm curious if that's something that strikes a chord with you in any particular way in terms of those big questions, in terms of like the touchstones of who this character is on the biggest level. Yeah, I think, I mean, the mutants clearly are allegory for so many things. And and like you said, like the otherness comes out. But even within, I like when they recognize within mutants, there are degrees, right? There's that one moment that's a little frustrating in this where he's remembering Wolverine. And it was like right when he got back and he and Wolverine are walking through this town and Kurt has the holographic, the thing to hide his appearance as he really is because he can't look like a human being. Like he can't walk into a town and disappear easily. And Wolverine's like, you have to stop being afraid and takes that away from him. And it's kind of supposed to be this like, be fearless, which it's a little hard to stomach when you're a marginalized person and that could save your life. Like passing and going under the radar could literally save your life. And and having someone say, you don't need this, who doesn't necessarily understand that aspect that's like a one teeny tiny moment of weakness in the script, I think, because it it doesn't feel authentic to the experience of someone who would have grown up feeling like the other their entire life and being hunted and having violence perpetrated against them for looking the way they do. But I appreciate kind of Kurt's consistent questioning of all those pieces of his identity, whether it's where he fits in with the mutants, where he fits in after what he sees as turning his back on heaven as a man of faith, where he fits in in his like romantic dramas. Like all of it to me is so interesting because he's a character of such depth and such emotion on, on multiple levels because of his long, long history in the comic series. Yeah, I mean, now I guess he's about 50 years old at this point. We're like, we're celebrating 50 years of giant size X-Men around now. And so he's been around for 50 years. And so many of that has been handled by the writer of this series. And so let's get to the credits of this book, which is, uh, it's written by Chris Claremont, art by Todd Nock, colors by Rochelle Rosenberg. Shout out to Rochelle, who's been on the show before. Uh, Letters in this book by VCs Corey Pettit and Joe Sabino. There's also some great covers in here. We've got Chris Somney covers, which are awesome. Matt Wilson doing some colors and Jamie McKelvey, who draws a great Nightcrawler butt. I got to give big Good butt. That's a great <laughs> it's butt. It's good butt. <laughs> yeah, there's like from behind, like classic, cool, like looking to the side pose. And I just focused right on it. Right on, on that butt. butt. <laughs> that little tush. I was like, great. I, I, that's one of the many fun things I like about Nightcrawler is there's like a sexiness to him. Mm-hmm. And we get to see a little bit of that in here in his dealings with Amanda Sefton, who is just a 
a really cool character. I wish she was around more because she's like this magic lady and they've got great history and there's such great chemistry between them. So much drama. There's those moments in there. and You touched on that a little bit, Preeti. It was, I just, this book does a really great job of balancing all those different aspects of who Nightcrawler is and seeing him as a solo act, but also within the confines of his friends and family too. And I'm really happy that that was in there. Yeah, it's it's really fun to watch him be kind of because he's like the blue fuzzy elf, but Nightcrawler's so hot. <laughs> like <laughs> he's there's um a great piece that Stephanie Williams wrote up for like sci-fi, I think, about like how hot Nightcrawler is and why we all think he's so hot. And I highly recommend everybody go read it because it's all true. <laughs> like <laughs> you see, like um Todd Nock and all the artists on these books did such a good job to bring that to life. Like I was rereading this morning to prep for this and there's this panel where it's just a profile. And I was like, God, that jawline though. (laughs) (laughs) This gets at something. My favorite depictions of Nightcrawler are bearded Nightcrawler. Yes. Bearded Nightcrawler. Oh man. So, you know, I don't want to, I don't want him to hide that jawline, but when you see that, you're like, okay, (laughs) whoa. This is now a Nightcrawler Thirst podcast. Like, that's just it. It always, that's going to happen. Preeti, I'm, I'm curious, going way back to young Preeti, I want to hear more about your origin story with the X-Men, maybe with Kurt, maybe with Marvel Comics in general. I would describe you as a famous Spidey fan. So I just want to hear about all of that and, and to get the broader context for how you got here. Well, I think like a lot of people probably have, I have an older brother who was super into this stuff. And so I was into it before I even kind of knew what it was through the X-Men like playing cards and the video game where Gambit and Nightcrawler were my absolute favorite characters to play. It wasn't until I got a little older that I actually started digging into the books themselves because it was like the cartoons, the cards, the games is what I was all about as a kid. Like X-Men Evolution I loved when I was younger. And coming into it from that side, you get a very different kind of notion of who Kurt is. And then when I kind of got into my later teens, I access the like real wonderful dramatic story of his actual like comics origin story and that I was old enough to appreciate, I think. And so I feel like I came to his story kind of at that time where you're like just old enough to be questioning stuff yourself or you're like, yeah, what is God? (laughs) So (laughs) like that was kind of where I felt very like a, a deep connection to this character of maintaining that faith despite everything and, and going through all these hardships due in no small part to what he looked like. Like I came of age in the like early 2000s, basically late nineties, early 2000s is when I were like formative years. And that was just something to connect to on such an easy level that that's what spoke to me about Nightcrawler. I want to jump back over to the book. Tucker always brings the more thoughtful questions. I, I stick to the, <laughs> I stick to the meat butts. and potatoes. Yeah, uh, <laughs> butts and bamfs, really, because I, I want oh, to yeah. get into... Oh, I love the bamfs. I love the bamfs, too. I, I, what's interesting about this and, and sort of what we do with Reading Club is thinking about the time and place that a book exists when it was first released. And so this one really stood out to me as like giving you a sense of like, this was very much of a time in the Marvel and the X-Men universe. 
It's like you have the Jean Grey school, which is like a really beautiful version of the Mutant Academy. You've got Wolverine as headmaster. You've got Wolverine depowered and in a really unsafe way. You've got Kurt coming back from the dead. Like It's an interesting look for the X-Men, but it's also going back to the BAMPs. This is like right after the BAMPs have really started to first appear in this way. And I was looking up what their story was because you don't really get a sense of like what their deal is other than their tiny little adorable versions of Nightcrawler that are always naked and just kind of mischievous. But their origin is real weird. These BAMPs in particular, because they started popping up after Kurt had died in the Jean Grey school, like they open a, a place and they like pop out like kind of like gremlins and they're like, Wah! you know, running around causing chaos. Their story is kind of told in, I believe, Amazing X-Men, which is the storyline which brings Kurt back to life right before this book, they sort of imprint on whomever finds them. And so they're like these like shapeless things. And so Kurt had found a bunch of them. And so they imprint on Kurt. And so they become this good little sweet, cute, weird bunch of creatures who can then teleport and do all this stuff. (laughs) I absolutely love them. And you can tell that Todd was having the time of his life. I don't know. It's it's one of those stories that, to Ryan's last point, you go from like these granular little details where you can roll around and have fun and play in it, but it really feels like it spans different genres and you're just like jumping in and out. You're bamfing in and out of these kind of different emotions really quickly and so deftly. Obviously, we're dealing with Chris Claremont here. So in terms of comics, it, it obviously makes perfect sense. I, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts like, Obviously, this story resonates with you, but as a fan, do you also feel the same way as a writer? Is this something where you go like, ah, oh, like, I wish I could have written the, the like the novel version of this, I, you know, something like that? Yeah, I think the structure of these 12 issues are amazing. Like, you have this, like, kind of existential crisis underlying almost all of it. Then you have the layer of like actual comics, fun, X-Men, like adventure kind of banana stuff that's happening. But there's so much heart to it like that. It it almost like cuts in half with that single issue of Nightcrawler dealing with Wolverine's death that I think is one of my favorite comic issues like ever, because it feels so honest and real. And this moment of like quiet and recognition that even though this medium is one that is like bombastic and fueled by like bright visuals and and whatever it allows for this like really introspective quiet moment to exist on two sides of these big adventures and that to me is just such smart writing it's an incredible like feat the way he put this 12 issue run to be so full of story like something that he balances well that is difficult to do is having two love interests in 12 issues. And you're not like angry about it. You're not like frustrated that Nightcrawler is making decisions. Like it all makes sense. Like Nightcrawler is so good at expressing like why and what's happening and the reality and the awkwardness of all of it that you're like, yes, I am on board with this. That's a difficult thing to do in such a limited amount of space. And, And such like, it could feel like whiplash that he's going, you know, from like, journey to journey, but it all feels very well paced because he has those moments to let us breathe and let us feel whatever Nightcrawler is feeling. Like it's just a really strong character book 
And so, yes, I'm very jealous as a writer and would love to be able to do that, though I don't know if I could. (laughs) To jump right on the back of that, making those decisions in terms of pacing, in terms of when we push towards the action, when we push towards the romance, the drama, the laughs, et cetera, like, I guess in the biggest sense, when you're going for plot versus what could be described more as character moments, when you're writing an original story, do those things emerge from you organically? Is that something that you just know, like, you know what, I'm not feeling this character at this moment. You know what I mean? I I need to get to know them a little bit more before we leap back into the plot in a big way. Or is that something that you prescribe beforehand? You say like, the math tells me by this point, I'm going to need a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I think the best thing you can do to be a writer is to read as much as you can and get a an instinct for story and a feeling for story because there will be times you're reading something and you're like, this feels like it doesn't work. Like something about it, I am not reacting in the way that the writer wants me to react because that's the goal, right? You want the reader to react to what you're writing in a specific way. So when I'm writing an original story, especially in comics, for me, it's detailing page by page each beat that happens on each page and making sure that there's no point in that outline where you're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. Why would this character act in this way in this moment? It all boils down to like authentic character to push the plot along. You don't want the plot pushing the character because then your character is going to make decisions that may not make sense. Uh, I want to go back to issue number seven, because we we had talked about trying to do just one through six for time's sake, but I kept reading just, especially when I got to seven, I remembered what seven was. Those issues are, I hate to say it, some of my favorite, the issues that come after some major event Mm -hmm. that is more sort of thoughtful. I was talking about this with someone else. The issue after Executioner Song is is really one of my favorite issues because it's about the characters coming to terms with everything that had just happened to them. And that's Nightcrawler coming to terms with the loss of his best friend, specifically after his best friend had lost him and they had just had like this short period of time to come back together again. And that it was a really beautiful sweet and sad issue. It's, I like that we can get those in Mm -hmm. the midst of, you know, going to space and and fighting pirates and and giant vortexes and magic and circuses and, you know, all kinds of X-Men Michigas. It's, Really, really sweet to read that. If anybody who is listening to this is like, ah, I'm not, I'm not a Nightcrawler fan, just read issue number seven of yes. this run. I think that one's going to like really get you. It's what makes the run work, I think, is this issue because it is that moment to breathe and to go through the stages of grief with this character in such a remarkably like human and authentic way. Like I love the moment where he sets up the home And he sees Wolverine's silhouette in the door. Like, this is all we're waiting for is Logan to come in. And he's like, wait, no, this is not, this is not what he would want. And having to shift from his own grief to focus on the person that he lost. Like, it's such a, like a smart and pure way to do it because you are in your own feelings. Like when you are going through loss, it's very much about your feelings and and your hurt and what, but wanting to honor the person matters too. And it will help you feel whole. Like, so it's so nice to see that on the page and see somebody go through an imperfect version of what grief is, because that's what grief is. It's imperfect. You cannot react to it in a perfect way to be okay. So it's nice when that happens in fiction to be able to relate on that level. 
in that same exact way, you know, I think speaking of the writing, speaking of the journey that Kama takes us on, it's only ever going to be as effective as is the medium of comics as the artist makes it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Todd Nock just does an incredible job specifically with those emotional moments with the body language, obviously just like the facial acting things like that. But the sort of like pleading way that Kurt's body can move and it's really, really done wonderfully. I was curious about your thoughts on that briefly and knowing you're a Spider-Man fan as well, if Mr. Nock falls into your list of favorite Spidey artists. Yeah, I think there's a clear understanding of movement and some of the best work that comes out of characters like Nightcrawler or Spider-Man is the elasticity of their movement coming across on the page is so important, but also remembering that level of movement will exist in every aspect of what they do, not just when they're fighting. And I think Todd Nock has a real clear understanding of that because he never moves in any other way than how Nightcrawler would move, no matter what he's doing, whether it's grieving or like (laughs) that picture at the end where he shows a picture of him and Bess before, like, it's like a photo of them, like on vacation or whatever. And I was like, this is great. Like his tail is like wrapped around her leg. And I was like, oh my goodness. (laughs) You have a clear, like, okay. (laughs) But there's just like a really clear understanding of what makes that character work in every small piece of how they're illustrated. And I think he has a great, great, understanding of Nightcrawler and his movement and his stillness. Yeah. I want to talk about the two supporting young mutants that show up in this, who I really dug. One of them is named Rico, who goes by, I guess, Scorpion Boy, but I don't think he's ever called Scorpion Boy in the book. Rico and then Ziggy Karst. And, you know, they're two mutants who are added into the mix in this book. And I thought they were adorable. Mm -hmm. They're a lot of fun. And it's, you've got Chris Claremont and Todd, but Chris really like being able to go back to characters he helped originate and create and and really develop their mythos over many years, playing some of the hits. Even with issue number seven, you get to see a lot of flashbacks to like big moments that Chris originally wrote. And then he's still contributing to the mutant universe with new characters and new ideas. And, and Todd with like, like, especially Rico is just such a weird look, but I close my eyes and I hear this really amazing young kid who's just like so excited to be a hero. I thought establishing a voice for a character who doesn't get a ton of screen time, who is only around for a little bit, is done really, really well in this storyline. Yeah, I agree. I think he made the really smart choice to put them in situations where they'd need to make character affirming decisions. Like the entire, like, I can't remember if it's 11 or 12, but when Nightcrawler is basically like, get out of here. Like, we will handle everything. You guys go get on the Blackbird, like, be safe so that we don't have to worry about keeping you safe. And Rico and Ziggy go and they're like, no, we have to save the children. Like, we have to do everything we can. And they're the ones who end up getting kind of the big bad while Nightcrawler and Bess are fighting those war war wolves. The war wolves, yeah. The war wolves. And getting to watch them kind of come to the decision they're going to do it and then figure out how to do it. That's all character building and it's character building in a heightened situation. And so you are rooting for them so strongly as the reader. And he just does a really good job of making them feel like real people having to make these decisions. Like they don't feel like 
just kind of hyper positive, like can do attitude. It's like, they're scared, they're afraid, but they recognize that they have to do this. And that's what makes these heroes relatable is that humanity. That's a a subject that I'm really fascinated by in terms of the humanity of a character that obviously has a lot of non-humanness to them. And speaking about that in its relationship to genre storytelling in particular, and like what that allows for a story to be, what that allows for a character to be, and how that allows for an exploration beyond what's, I guess, normally feasible. Because obviously we're dealing entirely in human emotions and our reality projected onto these stories, but I love the idea that somehow the hues can be deepened a little bit, like the colors can be a little bit brighter and it allows us to see these things in brighter relief in certain ways. As someone who clearly is a huge fan of genre storytelling and has written across the board in terms of genre, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, about like what comes to mind when you're thinking about what you love about genre storytelling, about what it allows you to do as a writer. I think the key is the relatability of it. It's like using these fantastical stories to tell stories that are kind of accessibly aspirational. Like you you never want to feel like it's so unrelatable that how could you even hope to understand it? For example, the best part of Spider-Man is his like, yes, there's all the stuff that happens because he is Spider-Man, but he has some very human issues, right? Like not being able to keep a job, never having any money, just like terrible luck. Like that is what makes him such a beloved hero, I think, is because he is good despite all of that. And he aims to succeed at being good, but it's not easy and he has to work at it. And so it's using genre to tell extremely relatable and accessible stories is what is so exciting about it to me. It's that at the end of the day, like you can see yourself in these people and that's what matters. Speaking about the books you've written, let's tell you li- the listeners a little bit about some of the Marvel titles that you've done. Cause you've, you've done a couple of books and I would imagine getting to play with some characters you're kind of fond of has been a hoot. It's pretty fun. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my second book in the Avengers Assembly series came out uh, just a few weeks ago, um, and it's called The Sinister Substitute. And so the Avengers Assembly series is um, Ms. Marvel, Miles Morales, Spider-Man, and Squirrel Girl going to an after-school program for superheroes that is run by Captain Marvel and Quicksilver and a bunch of our favorite heroes from the Marvel Universe And so book one was all about Ms. Marvel, and uh, that one was called Orientation. It came out last year. And now we're in book two, and it's all about Squirrel Girl and kind of trying to keep hold of everything when it feels like nobody's listening to you is a big theme in this book. But I got to pull in a lot of really fun characters. Like, I got to write Rocket and Groot a little bit and Thor and, of course, like, Focusing on a character like Doreen is so fun because she's just a sweet cinnamon roll, positive, like wonderful person. And there is a third one coming out, which I don't know if I am allowed to talk about, but the metadata has been released. And so it's online. (laughs) (laughs) If it's online, I mean, it's true, right? I feel like I can say it's like available for pre-order. It's real now. (laughs) 
Well, yeah, I mean, if it's available for pre-order, if somebody looks up your name, they're going to... They're going to see it. So it's the third Avengers Assembly title where the kids are going to uh, hang out with the X-Men. They're going on on an exchange program. Excellent. (laughs) Do you get to write Nightcrawler? Uh, I actually didn't fit a ton of Nightcrawler in. I went for Beast because Beast is in the first book. So we brought him back. Gambit, Storm... Gambit was the most fun for me because I was like, I love, I love Gambit. I love Gambit so much. He's such a rogue. (laughs) (laughs) Ryan has hesitations about Gambit's influence on kids, on like where he's going to lead them astray. So that's, that is a little bit of this, that, you know what? There's a little bit of it that happens. (laughs) It always four, comes back to friggin' game. Four, book four is the trip to Germany. <laughs> That's where we get the Nightcrawler action. Right? Or you could spin it off into an adult romance book starring Nightcrawler. You take him out of the Avengers assembly run and and go wild. If you let me write an adult <laughs> like fiction novel where Nightcrawler is just it's just a romance, like yes. A bodice ripping romance book. I will do starring it. Nightcrawler. <laughs> Oh yeah. Uh, the, speaking of speaking of working in the the YA, I call it medium more than genre. Yeah, it's like age level. Yeah. What do you enjoy about that most? Obviously, you're incredible about it. And when I think of you, I I personally instantly think about your extensive work with Squirrel Girl, who is just one of absolute favorite characters in the Marvel universe for me. And I think obviously that's a character that can tap into. Being in a YA book, like really wonderfully and easily, obviously, like you, there's a balance to be struck there. But I'm curious about like what you see as maybe relating a little bit to my my previous question, but like what you see as the opportunities that that gives in particular, that like the things you can explore, the things you can do in a YA book that you might not necessarily be able to do in the bodice ripping Bamf uh, <laughs> uh, story that we were talking about. Oh yeah. man, that book's definitely called. <laughs> Bamp the bodice ripper. <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> that would be his like pirate name. I'm Bamp the bodice ripper. <laughs> oh, thank goodness he like flies in like Errol Flynn. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. my name is Bamp. Hello. Um, okay, so one writing for kids is like the best thing on the planet because kids unabashedly love what they love and they are not afraid of talking about how much they love it. And so kids getting excited about reading is one of my favorite things ever. It's so pure. What's fun about these books is like, what's fun about superheroes and comics and and writing through this lens is that you can write about anything. Like you can write about things that kids are going through, but through a lens that they can access. And so, you know, you can write about feeling overwhelmed because there's so much going on and you don't know if you're going to be able to accomplish everything you want to accomplish. You can write about depression. You can write about feeling isolated and you can write about like wanting to, you know, understand how all your various cultures fit together and identity. And you can do it all through a really fun book that kids are excited to pick up. And I think that's really exciting to be able to present kind of positive messaging and and reinforcing like you as a kid reading this book like other people are going through what you're going through even though not everybody talks about it and just making sure that kids feel seen 
And that's kind of, that's so affirming as a young reader that it's, I feel very privileged to be able to contribute to that in some small way, part of that conversation. I love hearing you say that kids like just feel what they feel. It sounds like the best thing just to be able to trigger whatever that mm-hmm. kid response is of just like fully wearing the heart on the sleeve. That's really cool. It's really nice. It's a, I, I mean, obviously they'll also tell you if you don't like, if they don't like it. So that's the other side of the coin, <laughs> but like, get yeah, they were just, they're just so excited and it's awesome. So Catherine, my daughter is 19 months now and she's started to see some superhero stuff. She's watched me play the Miles Morales game. We watched the, like the, the back to theaters, Marvel studios video. That was just really good. And so one day I was wearing a a Marvel t-shirt and had Hulk on it. And she was like, who that, who that? (laughs) And I was like, this is Hulk. And she goes, Hulk. Yeah. Hulk is strong. She goes, Hulk. And so she loves Hulk. She calls Spider-Man baby and yes! she she knows that Same. that she knows she knows that baby goes wee wee and she loves she loves it she's just and that excitement is is just you can't touch it it's so good no it's uh, so it's so wonderful oh it's the best uh last thing i want to talk about on the book front for uh, nightcrawler which is also wonderful is once again todd knock that was spinning through issue 11 which we talked about a little bit but issue 11 has Rico and Ziggy going through and trying to save some kids and you've got Bess and and Nightcrawler and stuff. But Todd does something that is like, he just, he's a madman and he's amazing. And also he's so fast throughout the course of the issue. There's like this countdown running up at the top. Mm -hmm. There's the, like this chase that's going on and the, the kids are uh, Ziggy and, and Rico are like trying to free a whole bunch of kids from, from slavery. And as they go from page to page, Todd adds more heads of the kids reacting to the events going on around them. And these are all alien type of creature kids. They're all young. You can tell that they're young because Todd is great at like presenting a young face, even if it's like like a wolf cub looking boy. And they're all around. Every page, he adds more heads. Every page, they're different heads. He's not copying and pasting his work from page to page. He's drawing them in different reactions, in different phases, in different looking in different. Like to me, it's just, he's showing off. He's mm-hmm. showing off because he's so good and he is so humble. He would never say that like, you know, he, he was just flexing muscles because it's not a thing that Todd would ever do, but he is flexing so hard in this issue. It should put other people to shame. It's so good. I love him. I adore him. He's a friend. But man, issue 11, I I encourage everyone, read seven. And if nothing else, flip through 11 and go through and just see uh, a really great storyteller and draftsman at work doing some really cool work. Just read the whole thing. It's all good. Just read the whole run. (laughs) It's only 12 issues. You can do it in a few hours. It's really good. It is. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks for suggesting it. I saw the list of everything that had been talked about because the first thing I suggested, I guess you guys had just gone over. And then I was like, oh, you know who I want to talk about? I want to talk about Hot Nightcrawler. (laughs) (laughs) Preeti, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for bringing up Hot Nightcrawler. Always. Uh, (laughs) uh, I'll even forgive you for your Gambit uh, discussion. Listen, it's Gambit, Hot Nightcrawler, and Baby. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> That's the name of book five. 
Oh, yes. <laughs> like five of Avengers Assembly. <laughs> They're going to be like, you're fired. <laughs> you went out in a blaze of glory, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Preeti. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Preeti. Thank you once more to Preeti. I've been waiting for that interview to hit the airwaves because I had so much fun Truly one of the best, most delightful people to chat with. What a great, great guest. That's a wrap for us this week. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jasmine Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. And just like you, dear listener, he loves to get his blue on. <laughs> I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. And this is Marvel. Your universe.